2: Hello glowworms and welcome to season two of The Vanity Project with me, Vanity Von Glow. I can hardly believe that we are kicking off our second season so hot on the heels of our first string of episodes. This year is going to be a busy one for me with my cabaret shows, original music on the way and some exciting announcements coming soon. So we wanted to keep the momentum of the podcast going while I still have breath in my body. For our first discussion, I'm joined by the MP Jess Phillips. Now, you might know Jess from her various viral video clips in the House of Commons, where she could be said to be one of the most vocal members of the House. Emotions have run high and Jess has been visibly furious and utterly forthright in her condemnations of both government policy and the Prime Minister himself. In the online culture wars, Jess can be a controversial figure. Some see her as a grandstanding parliamentary warrior. Um, but by others, they see her as a breath of fresh air, someone who keeps it real and is unafraid of calling a spade a spade. In our conversation, and in my research for the interview, I find myself warming a lot to Jess Phillips. She's a Labour MP, a tough talker. She is a staunch character. Um S T A U N C H staunch. Staunch. We discuss cooperation in an age of division, and I think that people who have seen her as this fiery persona on the edge of the political divide might be interested to listen to this conversation where we find a woman who's keen to cooperate where she can and who is focused on improving the lives of her constituents. In 2019, for example, a controversy emerged as local Muslim parents in Saltley, Birmingham, associated with the Parkfield Community School, objected to lessons on relationships and inclusivity. These included, but were not limited to, teaching about acceptance of LGBT people. It was part of a No Outsiders programme, but many Muslim parents objected on the grounds that LGBT relationships were immoral. I mean, certainly some of mine have been, but that's neither here nor there. As an MP from this area with constituents caught up in the dispute, Jess Phillips was facing the issue on her doorstep. So we chat a bit about the Saltley protests, we also talk about the Labour Party and why, why they aren't clobbering the Tories in the polls. And as you'll see, Jess is unafraid to speak her mind about her own party, which is less than perfect. We also find out who Jess would like to play her in the movie of her life. And then a bit later on, we're joined in Queen's Corner by London nightclub DJ, my friend David Robson. He's basically a Jess Phillips superfan. Before we begin, I'd like to encourage you, if you haven't already, to subscribe to The Vanity Project wherever you listen to your podcasts. Our audience is growing and we have some great guests lined up this season. I don't want you to miss a single episode. If something in today's conversation touches a nerve or rings true or stimulates your philosophical glands, then why not give us a share on your social media as well so that the conversation can continue with the trolls in your comments section. We're hoping as time goes on to have in each season at least one elected Member of Parliament on as a guest. And I'm aware we've had two Labour MPs on now. Um, At some point, I think it would be pretty cool to have a Conservative Party member, maybe even a Lib Dem. We were hoping to interview an MP from the SNP for my live talk show event in Glasgow a few weeks ago, uh, but parliamentary business interfered with that, so it would be great to hear from the SNP down the line as well. We're really keen here at The Vanity Project to have discussions with people from all ends of the political spectrum. And also we'll be letting our hair down a bit with some of the episodes in this season as we interview some very fabulous entertainers and politics can take a back seat. But for now, Jess Phillips. Jess Phillips is the Labour MP for Birmingham Yardley since 2015, and her background before elected politics was working for the Women's Aid Federation. Her parents were switched on politically, working towards real life solutions for childcare problems when she was growing up. So she was inspired herself to get involved in later life. She joins us now as one of the most followed MPs on Twitter, a parliamentary firebrand, unafraid to speak her mind, which makes her very appealing for a drag queen to talk to. <laughs> uh, she's currently the Shadow Minister for Domestic Violence and Safeguarding. Um, Jess Phillips, hello. Hello, how are you? I'm very good. I'm so glad that you've come on. This is our second season and we're glad to have another MP. We spoke to Don Butler in our last few episodes. So I'm glad to have another Labour voice here on the podcast.
3: Oh, thanks for having
2: me. Um, so there's no guidebook on how to be an MP. Some MPs will be Westminster campaigners, and some will be really focused on constituency objectives. And you've said in the past that some seem to do almost nothing. We know that (laughs) Conservative MP Geoffrey Cox was making a bit of money in the Caribbean last year. So I'm curious to know what type of MP are you? Um,
3: I like to think that I'm um, a little bit from column A, a little bit from column B, Um, essentially like being a drag queen. I try and have different identities. So I'd say that my main focus is always uh, being a good constituency MP, like spending the time in my constituency and doing the constituency casework to the best of my degree. So essentially I'm a social worker. Um, But then uh, again, I have quite a, you know, I take quite a, a big part of my job as being the stuff that you do in the chamber and the stuff that you do in parliament some members of parliament are absolutely amazing in the chamber like they're in there every day they ask questions about absolutely everything i'm not like that i'll only go in there if i actually know or care about um the thing that's being discussed like you know we had a whole session recently on disposable barbecues and i've just got no strong feelings about that about disposable (laughs) barbecues so like you know i don't have like a crushing passion to like get rid of them I think I'm broadly for them. So, But lots of MPs will just go into absolutely anything that's going on. Uh, I don't do that. But um, mostly I'd say I'm an activist. I'm, right. I, I don't do anything, really,
2: that isn't about changing something. And that must come from, um, I mean, you've got a particularly diverse constituency.
0: Mm-hmm. Birmingham is one of the
2: big cities of the UK. So it strikes me that a lot of what you're doing is you you see that there's a broad spectrum of needs where you're coming from and you have to listen to the people there. Um, So Uh, activists, I think they're on the street, they're actually out there talking to the people, finding out what the needs are. Oh
3: yeah, absolutely. Like Everything that I do is driven by somebody who's walked through my doors uh, in my office or into one of my surgeries. Um, And when you start to hear the same story over and over and over again, you start to think, right, you, you start plotting in your head And this happens to me no matter who is talking to me about their issue. I start to plot in my head the campaign that we will run. It's like like an automatic trigger that starts happening. Um, But yeah, you have to be amongst the people that you represent. Otherwise, you're only there talking about your own life experience. And actually, it's much better if Members of Parliament have similar life experiences to their constituents, go on the same buses send their kids to the same schools go to the same hospitals because you are then living a similar life to your constituents
2: so it strikes me you have to be a bit of a storyteller when you're trying to work out how to put a campaign together because you've got to think of how do we how, how do we get people to engage with this particular set of problems
3: oh yeah 100 percent. like storytelling is the is the single most important thing in campaigning for anything Mm -hmm. if you don't have a hook that will grab somebody within a minute i'd say it used to you used to get about 10 minutes but uh people (laughs) not
2: knowing the TikTok era
3: exactly you've got you've got 30 seconds to to grab somebody and so you need to be compelling and if you're compelling in the first 30 seconds people will stick around and listen but uh yeah you have to be really good at storytelling and and weaving people's lives always with them and their approval in mind into something that makes people sit up and change things. But, yeah, storytelling, it's it's like the be-all and end-all of my job, being able to tell a story. And lots of MPs are brilliant at it and lots are dreadful.
2: Your constituency was Brexit-leaning in the referendum. It was, very. You know, a lot of people were hoping for some sort of reconciliation as a nation after that, but obviously we've then had a pandemic and the, it feels like there's still a lot of fracture in our, in our politics. What kind of story um, is gonna assist reconciliation? Because you know? it's for the political parties to try and unite people. We need to have a, a way to come through. Because times, times look like they're gonna be getting quite difficult
3: well the the fundamental in this situation is it, it you what you said there is that political parties have a responsibility to do this and that is absolutely the case yeah. however political um power is much easier to gain when you divide and conquer divide and conquer is the yeah. simplest quickest way to win power because it's very easy to spread it's quick and dirty basically it's the lazy way to basically get people to rally to your cause is to say look at them over there they're getting something that you're not getting yeah. or you know like look at that that institution aren't they the baddies um and so actually the most important thing for myself and for the labor party uh, although it is much 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 harder to do that is to try and tell a story of hope and forward thinking and future now in the pandemic there was and to me, actually, it only lasted about six weeks. But there was a story of unity um, that broke out uh, in the early pandemic, certainly, where everybody had a universal experience. So It didn't matter how rich or poor you were, really. You were all locked in your house. Uh, and for the first time ever, I started people started to properly sort of check their privilege without recognising that that's necessarily what they'd be doing. And people would say things like, oh, it's been really hard and I really miss my mum, but, you know, like, at least I've got a garden. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Like, it'd be awful if you didn't have a garden uh, and things like that. And so the the unifying experiences of humanity are actually the most powerful thing uh, and commonality of experience. And so we have to try and find the things that make a common experience between Burnley and Brighton. And there are many, many more things that the people in Brighton have in common with, Uh, to the people in Burnley many more but what they will see when they turn on their television certainly during the Brexit vote is that they won't see that being represented the thing that unites them the fact that you know they are worried about their kids education the fact that they want to make sure that they're going to be cared for when they're older the fact that they don't like rubbish on their streets either like that doesn't get talked up the stuff that is a general common experience regardless of where you live. And the Labour Party is as guilty as this as anyone is that it it has for some time obsessed about people at the very bottom, you know, your sort of food bank use um, stuff and people at the very top like look at, you know, Rishi Sunak's wife and non-dom status. And actually the vast majority of people exist somewhere in the middle and there are unifying things about... Um, about those people that we just haven't really tapped into, uh, and the stories that unite them, but like you know, the the BBC does it every night with on television, like Strictly Come Dancing, for example. You know, it's you, the people of Rochdale love that as much as the people of Surrey. Like yeah. there is loads of things that are about hope and joy and togetherness. And it's much more powerful than greed and envy and, and uh, separation. But it's just much, it takes much more time to spread hope. And, it take,
2: and you, you have to have huge amounts of intent. There must be challenges, because I'm thinking about um, in, in, in Birmingham, there was the Parkfield Community School where yeah. Muslim parents were protesting LGBT relationships being mentioned mm-hmm. within the school curriculum. And obviously, you know that Birmingham's your that's your area. That's your yes, it is. Yeah, you know, what challenges are there for mediating between community interests? Because, um, you know, it's one thing to try and have a have a sort of a vision that we can all believe in together, but sometimes traditional or religious communities on one side might have an issue with progressive interests and objectives on the other. And like that, that's gonna be the stuff that's the battleground in the next election. Uh, you're,
3: you're absolutely right. But one thing that you, in that exact example, as somebody who had to literally go and mm-hmm. um, uh, try and mediate uh, between different groups of people, is be always be weary of the bad faith actors, um, acting to divide and misrepresent communities Mm -hmm. um, for evil purposes. Um, And uh, be weary of always listening to the people who shout the loudest now. So in one of the schools, Anderton Park School, uh, she's literally just around the co- corner from my house. They had lots and lots of protesters outside. And and the people who were protesting outside, their children didn't even go to the school. And the vast <laughs> majority of the parent, you know what I mean? Like the vast majority of the parents in the school like didn't like the protest, but you know, also were not necessarily feeling that they had the voice or strength to, to come out against it. There's all sorts of reasons why you might not want to come out against pr- protests, regardless of, um, and, and, and Any cultural norms, it's you know, most people don't want to just have argy-bargy on the way to helping their kids off to school. Most people just want a normal life, an easy life. Um, but it, you, you have to make sure that when somebody claims to be representing a huge group of people, in this case, either the LGBT community or uh, the, the Muslim community, um, that they're actually representing those people, not just representing themselves and looking for attention essentially. Because what I found in that case and a number of other cases where this sort of clash of rights of sort of conservative uh, religious uh, groups, is not, not by no means just um, Islam, I've dealt with it with regard to sexual, sex education and Catholic churches and ch- Catholic schools. Um, as well, is that, you know, be wary of thinking that the person who stands in front of you shouting actually represents the views of those people. And so you can find for every bad faith actor, there is 10 good faith actors who might not agree and they might have some fundamental differences, but they can be brought together to have a conversation about a way forward in a very calm and reasonable manner. But that doesn't make good news. Right. That doesn't look good on the telly does it that doesn't make interesting documentaries that some quite nice people who sort of disagree on some things and sort of agree on others got
2: down together and had a nice chat i've been saying with um one of the interviews we did for the for the Vanity project was with the scottish comedian karen dunbar who is hilarious and was on our tv screens when i was you know in my early teens and this is something we discussed around cancel culture which is a slightly different area of discussion Mm -hmm. but that actually identifying between good and bad faith actors is going to be the challenge for the coming period, <laughs> you know, for all of us, because you can't keep having um, a solutions oriented um, approach derailed by people who just want to watch the world burn. And there are people yeah. who are incentivized to, you know, sometimes it's sometimes it's journalists, sometimes it's people on Twitter. It's people who are incentivized to have a take that keeps the dispute going. Oh, 100 percent. And even uh, really uh, good faith actors can fall into that uh,
3: category as well because of um, the sort of gamification, if you will, of things like Twitter. Um, It's, uh, you know, it's it's very, very sometimes I realise that I'm retweeting away my own liberty. Um, like you know you join in in a row and then you think oh Jesus you've done it again you've fallen for it again like you know right. you could have just been like oh well never mind and that would have been a considerably better response um, but yeah there there is all sorts of bad faith actors seeking for that sort of you know like the the match that make the spark that sets the tinderbox alight but you mustn't ever And we need people out there speaking for, like, essentially quite the boring average Joe. Do you know what I mean? Like, like most people are just sort of like, oh, you know, you do you. I'll just, you know, keep it to yourself. Like, that is the vast majority opinion in the country. It's not like that they're going to go out and wave a rainbow banner or uh, they're going to go on a Black Lives Matter march. But they, they just are like, oh, you know of course people should be treated nicely you know i hope that i hope they yeah. i hope that happens but you know i've got to go and pick the shopping up so yeah. like it, we have to be really really mm. what i like to call the alt reasonable movement that i'm going <laughs> like to start like the alt right i'm going to start like the oh, alt like probably be all right movement like it's not very compelling is it it's not compelling when you've got a burning flame uh, to watch or the other thing that you can watch is just like you know a tv dinner yeah well
2: you know it's that thing of that people everybody well not everybody but a lot of people a lot of the people i know as well working around artists and creatives all the time um seem to feel that they have to have a take on everything that they have to have an opinion on everything and you you being an mp you need to potentially be ready at the drop of a hat to talk about channel 4 rishi sunak's wife atrocities in ukraine you know women's rights which is an area of you that you that you do specialize more in but you know did another mp make a gaffe is so and so gonna win uh, you know strictly come dancing and actually it's it's not normal to have an opinion on everything i have
3: no strong feelings about so many things yeah i like I, i and i think it's okay to say that I could be like, oh, you know, I don't think it's great, but it's not, like, top of my list of worst things ever. Like, you know, like, I I mean, like, the the Rishi Sunak's wife thing, like, I think it's dreadful if she's a non-dom and she's not paying a tax here. Would it take me to the barricade? Probably not. Like, you know, like, that's the reality of the situation, is that you you don't have to be compelled to have strong feelings about anything. Um, But the things it would be so much better if people rather than um like feeling that aggression alone and anger is activism it isn't the focus on the outcome so i will have opinions about things that i mean i've got opinions like anybody about everything like i've got very strong opinions about bottled water and people drinking water too much anyway i'm not going to try and legislate for it <laughs> but um but I don't moisturise my skin. I've got very strong feelings about it. However, I'm not, like, you you don't need to. I think that people have mistaken being angry about something as activism, and it's not activism. And what I always try and say to people is, like, what is the outcome you are seeking? Where's the end game of this upset? If you're going to use that upset to channel it into... Taking direct action, undertaking a campaign, seeking election, going and trying to change the policies and procedures of your where you work, like do that. Being angry is like um, in and of itself, and then nothing changes. Changing is like drinking poison. Yeah, it is just, and it will make you more angry at these institutions. And then you become even more cynical. And cynicism within the general population is dangerous. Yeah. It's dangerous and it it just hands power to the people who then who are the ones who turn up to the meetings. Yeah. And so we have to be really careful. So the thing I would say is don't feel you have to have an opinion on anything. But if you do have strong feelings about something, strong feelings should activate you to do something. You, Not you just could. have strong feelings about them.
2: I watched an interview where you said something that stuck with me, which um, is, is sort of uh, linked with what we're discussing just now. So in some of your collaborative work in parliament, uh, where you're focusing on women's issues, you've said that, you know, you're happy to dance with the devil and mm-hmm. sit on a committee and work with the people in power. And at the moment that's the Tories, if it's going to help women and children yeah. and that people who are unprepared to do that, if you're not prepared to sit down and, and go through that pragmatic process, then you're not a movement. You're just having a row. And I thought it was yeah. a great phrase because, you know, in my own life, I've, 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 I've caught myself out. You know, as you get older, you start to realise sometimes you'll have an argument because you're almost emotionally addicted to having an argument. Can and you, it's yeah. not about resolving the issue. And I think there's a lot of that goes on as well. Definitely.
3: I mean, it's like when you start, when I start having an argument with my partner, if I'm like annoyed with him, with my husband, like, within seconds of the argument happening, I can't see the outcome uh, and the point, and I wish it hadn't started, and yet I was in... I was—I had no control over starting it, um, or he had no control over starting, and I had no control over reacting to it. It, it. Immediately, I'm like that. Oh, God, I want this to go away. I want this to go away. Like, stop it. Stop it. Like, I wish this hadn't started. Um, but, yeah, that's absolutely the case. Like, I don't... Like some of the things, you know, I I have to make the government look good on violence against women and girls. I have to sit down with them and say this is what you should do, and when they when they do it, I have to give heap praise on them. I don't like it particularly. I don't, you know, and I I think give credit where credit's due uh, and all that. But I will do it because it's not about me being the most righteous, you know, superstar. Mm -hmm. If if that's the outcome i'm after then you know like, like you say i could just be like really controversial online it's very easy that sort of path is very easy to tread it's not hard to become a controversialist it's the simplest thing in the book and they always think that people who are really controversial think that uh you know no one's going to say it if i don't say it oh you know uh it's just like literally people say that shit all the time <laughs> like you're not original Um, But if you're not willing to actually do the work and sometimes work across the lines that you uh, that maybe your morality uh, puts into question and you're only thinking about yourself. I have to think about keeping people in beds at night, not whether I can sleep soundly because I did the best, rightest thing.
2: That, that cross-party collaboration that goes on. Um, when I was chatting to Don Butler, she said actually she gets on with the people who she's in a committee with because you're all focusing on a task together, you know. Yeah. But what we see as the observing public is often those clickbait moments in Parliament. I mean, some of the most some of the most entertaining moments in Parliament are those adversarial moments. Yeah. You're, I mean, of you've got you've got yeah. plenty uh, hits on YouTube for. For getting up there and and giving it giving it all that of course, um, so I understand why that's that's um it's exciting viewing um but people don't necessarily realize who are participating in a discourse online on Twitter that actually the people who are sworn mortal enemies in parliament are also colleagues. you are also working together yeah
3: yeah we, we you know it's like does everybody in the country love everybody in their workplace? Yeah. And or, and do they behave professionally around them? Like, you know, in the canteen? Do you think that, like, you know, you might not like Sue from accounting, but you don't go and smack her in the face in the canteen? Do you, you just are like, yeah. you know, you, you, you like have Sue. to get on with her. When you're put on a team with Sue from accounting, you've got to crack on with Sue, even though she irritates you yeah. and always is eating biscuits at any time of the day. Like, my brother used to complain that everybody in his office was constantly grazing. It's like, it's so irritating. Like, everybody's just constantly eating. Um, but yeah, it's like, that's what parliament is like, but we don't, we don't talk about that. We don't talk about, we don't talk anywhere near enough about most of the work that we do, like in our communities. Um, it's just like politicians broadcasting themselves standing in front of a building that they had nothing to do with building, uh, wearing a hard hat and like talking about (laughs) potholes and things. We don't talk about the people and the effort and the work that goes into it that is collaborative, that the people, But the election cycle does that to us. The election cycle essentially um, distorts that. And so you have to land blows for the sake of winning an election. Mm -hmm. And you have to sort of claim that you're you're doing it all on your own, like in your constituency. Like, I don't do anything on my own. My staff do much more work in my constituency than I do for a start off. And like when things change in my constituents, it's because the people there did something um, and got together and maybe I worked with them. But the the fact that you have to go and seek votes does mean that you need these these high performing uh, moments um, on. And and social media has ruined politics for that because there's no debate now. Everybody's just looking for the clip. Um, uh, That's horrible. I hate that. Um,
2: Because so there's a distortion taking place. And obviously, the distortion is increased because we communicate more than ever, right? And that's a social mm-hmm. media problem that, mm-hmm. that keeps, actually it keeps coming up in the chats I'm having on the podcast, because I think it, it, it interests me, but it's, it's, it's in every subject matter. So maybe, I wonder if you can help me with this one, because I have no idea what to think of this. Nadine Dorries has announced they are going to sell Channel 4. Mm-hmm. And I can't tell if everyone's, you know, everyone, everyone on the left has a vehement reaction against this. Everyone on the right is, you know, quite right. Let's get on with it. And I can't, I literally just have no idea. I don't know if it's a good idea. I don't know if it's a bad idea. It seems instinctively like there could be some good things about it. It seems instinctively like it's a shame to lose an asset. Um, I, I'm clueless. And for me, I think that I mistrust people's takes on it because um, of the distortion yeah. that we're discussing. I mean, yeah, what, yeah, what's yeah. the deal with that? Is this going to, is Channel 4 being sold going to be a catastrophe for the artist?
0: and Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
3: Um, I think that Channel 4 being sold, you know, I don't necessarily think it will be a total catastrophe, um, but I I also don't think it's good uh, for the arts. Channel 4 was entirely set up in order to um, essentially create uh, the british creative media um yeah. that was different uh, and it has undoubtedly done that like loads and loads of british film for example comes out yeah, of film four back the, in the day yeah the, all, the all that movie. sort of thing like and the british film industry and 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 what i think is important about it is and this is a thing that people don't understand necessarily is the idea of soft power in the world yeah. um and the amount of soft power that the united kingdom has because of its creative industries because of uh, a creative uh, progressive view of um of how we make media and it's by no means perfect there are many criticisms I could make of um, of the BBC and Channel Four, um, that you know that that ITV isn't uh, you know some sort of evil uh, enterprise by comparison, or Netflix isn't evil by comparison. They all fall foul of all sorts of different cultural norms about class and race and uh, and the rest of it, and whose story gets told. All of them do, but the the idea of our soft power and the government having a vested interest in a trusted media and a trusted um, uh, soft power is really, really important. Um, and, and and selling Channel 4 won't, isn't a you know, when you say it would be a shame to lose an asset. I mean, it it's not gonna raise the government hardly any money to sell yes, Channel 4.
2: It, One billion pounds is- Yeah,
3: I mean, dollar it's dollar. like, you know, I know that sounds like a lot to ordinary people and obviously we'd all like a billion pounds. Um, but, like, you know, that's, it's a rounding error in, in, in
2: Treasury terms. Do you know and what we need so... to do? We need to nationalise Adele. <laughs> yeah, nationalise Adele. Her. You know, she's, but, the, she's a big
3: ambassador for the UK. Well, it was actually, that was actually the manifesto pledge <laughs> of, um, I think it was Buckethead, Lord Buckethead. Oh, did he? <laughs> yeah, Lord Buckethead, who always stands against the Prime Minister of the day. Yeah. In the elections. This is a brilliant quirk of British politics, isn't I it? Know. That people who are dressed up as a fish finger can stand for elected office or, you know, put a bucket on their head. But his one of his manifesto pledges was to nationalise Adele. So you were onto something there. What? But you, you Great, know that, that's like I need a bucket. <laughs> <laughs> but I like I like the idea that um, there is media companies in the UK that have a have to have in where they are based, in where the stories that they tell, in their outlook, they have to have a public interest element, mm-hmm. um, and I like that fact. And that's that is a difference between you know that is a left and right difference though versus the regulator versus mm-hmm. um, deregulation. Um, I, I like the idea that the British state has a vested interest in the expansion of British creative industries. I like that and it has an asset that allows it to show not just that it's gonna be a thing that gets talked about on committees, but it's an active thing that happens. Uh, and that Channel 4 has to, um, and the BBC, have to have a vested interest in the public interest. And it creates things like, you know, This Is England, and um, and it creates things like, like all the Film 4 stuff, and like all of the David Attenborough stuff, like this... This stuff that has a public interest matters to me. I don't just want to watch commercial television that is the thing that will sell the most money because then, you know, I, you know, you just end up with like celebrities, I don't know, being pickaxed out of ice. Touch well, that the dumb truck, show about, you know,
2: like Is it a cake and everything's yeah. a
3: cake. <laughs> I Can mean... I just say my my one of my best friends, seven year old son, is obsessed with Is It a Cake? So I mean I mean there's a place for—is it a cake?
2: I'm worried it's gonna. I mean, what next? Is it a steak pie? Like, this, <laughs> we could do spin-offs for everything, couldn't we? um So I know we've discussed the sort of uh, fit, uh, opinion fatigue. um <laughs> It's annoying to have opinions about everything. But this next <laughs> one, I'm curious to know because I'm. I I I kind of don't like calling this a cost of living crisis. I feel like that is a that's a an obfuscating term, but. But people's, people's bills are going up and things are going to get difficult. Yeah. And, you know, at the moment, Labour are doing better in the polls than they've done in some time.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: But you would almost expect them to be clobbering the Tories, especially given all the, the bad feeling people have around the party, party. gate scandals and stuff mm. like that. Why do you think that Labour aren't miles ahead at this moment in time?
3: I, I think it's just rehabilitation. I think it's going to take a lot longer. Like, you know... Um... Conservative governments are the default default position of our of our country. Like that's the reality. Tony Blair is the only member of Parliament, the only Labour uh, MP and PM who ever like won multiple terms. It's not. The default is not uh, the Labour Party. The default is always the Conservative government um, and has been since, you know, even I mean, since the time immemorial, the Labour Party's only even existed for like 120 years. So, mm-hmm. um, But it, it, the Labour Party sunk so low in people's opinions that it's going to take um, a, a huge amount of rehabilitation and trust. And I'm not just talking about the Corbyn era, I'm talking about the uh, the sort of era of the broken economy in 2008. Like, you know, but the Tories are about to hit their own version of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're much more ruthless in telling that story. They're much more ruthless in saying, oh, they were the baddies than we are um, uh, doing that necessarily about them. Um, but also we just need to cheer up a bit. I know that, like you said, there's a cost of living crisis, which you're absolutely right. seems derisory to way to sort of uh, like sloganize the fact that people are terrified about whether they can afford their heating bills um, and their food. Um, and uh, the, there's, there's party gay and, uh, and all of that. And it, there's all sorts of things to be really cross about. And it's hard in opposition because you are just there to say, look at them, they're doing it wrong. But... We do need to cheer up a bit, the Labour Party. You know, you need we need to be cheerful. Now, I spend my time most of my days talking about rape and talking to rape victims, and yet I manage to be quite cheerful all the time as well. And I don't think anyone would describe me as being particularly sort of a sour Um And <laughs> so, like the the I think that there is the Labour Party needs to grow in confidence, and the, sort of the top team from Keir Starmer and the cab the the shadow cabinet like feel really like a team a hopeful team um and you know that that's going to take some time because we we've taken quite a knocking you know the losing the election it to such a level the fighting that's gone on the sort the, of way the that fight- there's just easy ways to slag off the labor party it's it, all they're like battle scars and we're still just trying to stand up yeah the
2: the, the fighting thing um struck a chord when I was chatting to, to John Butler, because she she described the SNP, and I'm Scottish, so I always have mm-hmm. one one little ear listening out for the SNP, um, uh, just because all my friends are supporters of the SNP, although, though I myself am not, but all my friends in Glasgow, every single one of them is pro-independence. Um, and she described the SNP as being like an army at Westminster, she envied their sense of unity and said, I wish that Labour could be as unified as that. Is that something that you think is, is that cohesion will come with time? I know when you, I know when Corbyn was the leader that you, you were. I think yeah. you found that quite a challenging time to be an MP for the Labour Party because it wasn't necessarily an electable proposal being put forward under Corbyn's mm-hmm. leadership.
3: So, also, I just thought I found many of his views deplorable. Oh, no. <laughs> I, I didn't like. I mean, it's not just that. Like you know, I, I didn't like the sort of raging anti-Semitism that I saw break out in the Labour Party. I have often find, uh, even though I describe myself as being from the left of uh, politics, uh, it can be quite masculine and uh, not very feminist. Uh, and I, I, I sort of felt uh, like that about it for a, a, a while as well. But um, actually, the SNP, uh, she, Dawn is absolutely right in saying that they, they move as a, you know, a cohesive unit. Um, but actually that's not been the case really for the last six months. They have fractions within factions within themselves now um, that are really springing up uh, quite a lot of the stuff around uh, self-ID and women's rights has caused fractions in the SNP stuff, like the Alex Salmon versus Nicola Sturgeon. There's been quite a bit of that that has gone on. Um, So they're by no means as cohesive as they were. Um, But Dawn's fundamental point is right. But look, I I think that the Labour Party factions have been uh, written so much about it over the past couple of uh, years. The Tory parties, of course has as as deeper rifts i mean we left the european union because of a 30 yeah, yeah. year long fight in the yeah. uh, conservative party and that you can already all this stuff about rishi sunak if you think that that's coming from the labor party that that's been briefed to the media by the labor party then you're not paying close enough attention that is coming from within uh it is they are briefing about each other left right and center um, and so, you, you know, they are they are just as bad. It, it happens in all political movements. Do I think that we shouldn't air our dirty laundry in public quite so much? Yes, of course I do. Um, but also I think that it's, it's naive to think that broad churches of organisations are all going to get on with each other all the time. Uh, I just wish that the Labour Party made less of a, an enemy of the leader of the Labour Party and more of an enemy of the leader of the Conservative Party.
2: (laughs) (laughs) It seems to me like when you mentioned there that some of the fractures in the SNP platform at the moment would be around questions of self-ID and transgender issues and regrettably I I think at the next election there's going to be quite an ugly conflict around some of the transgender issues that are that are being discussed at the moment. One of the things is, obviously, every constituency MP in the country is going to have to have an answer for the question, what is a woman? Um, this, which which is a question that would, people would find it very strange. It's bizarre, isn't it? It's like, that, what that is an orange? <laughs> and, and people find it to be a bizarre question coming from completely different ends of the debate around it. Um, are you ready to answer questions like that?
3: Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't personally find it uh, difficult to answer the sort of basic question, what is a woman? I think a woman is an adult human female. Um, but I, I also recognise that there, uh, that people uh, with can change their gender. You can't change your sex. You can change your gender. Gender and sex are two different things to me. I don't find that particularly difficult to say that. Um, I don't like the idea of womanhood being erased. Um, but I've never so far in my uh, many interactions with a, whether it's LGBT groups or uh, trans women themselves um, yeah. actually heard any of them suggesting that we should remove the word women from things. It seems to come from somewhere else, like yeah. the question, what is a woman doesn't necessarily come from either side of the argument yeah. uh, on that. It's it at I think it's a weird question. I think that just like blindly saying trans women are women is just a slogan. It doesn't actually mean anything. Like, the, the it's a
2: yeah. You, it's you an said... issue that
3: needs to, that you need to be able to answer simple questions. What is a woman? Uh, and do now now it's gone on to can a woman
4: have a penis? Uh, it's it... you know I don't think that slogans uh, are the way forward on it or trying to answer like as if a simple question is is the way forward but no i think a, a woman is an adult human female you've described those um those types of slogans as trumpian before mm. and i think that
2: once again we're we're inclined towards tweetable <laughs> 241 character or however many characters you can use in a tweet solutions to things but those aren't conversation advancing slogans no. um at the moment um <laughs> I, I, i'm i'm curious about that there's this conversion ban um, yeah. issue taking place with the LGBT community. And I know that a lot of my friends are going to be going to a protest because they're mm-hmm. they're angry that the ban on conversion therapy that the government are going ahead with for uh LGB people mm-hmm. will not also cover a ban on conversion therapy for trans people.
4: Yeah.
2: The government's saying that that it's a different question, conversion therapy for sexuality is a different question from gender identity. It may well be a different question, but it doesn't mean it doesn't have the same answer. (laughs) Well, absolutely. But there's a slogan that I've seen all over my social media in the past few days, which is no ban without the trans. And it seems to me like a bit of an own goal because is the proposal of that slogan... Don't ban it. (laughs) Don't ban conversion (laughs) therapy because we didn't get every single request met... And to me, it's like, okay, yes, I understand we want to win the whole battle, but um, there's still a conversation to be had another day. You've got to take the win you've got, which is the thing you've been asking for
4: for 10 years, which is a ban on conversion therapy you, for people. You, you, you can take it. What I always say to any activist doing anything is be weary of being too grateful for the things you get. Like, it's fine to tick something off and then work towards something else. Like, you know, women's rights over many, many years, like, uh, you, I abortion rights now 50 years old still stand almost exactly the same as they did when they were invented. Um, we still have to I still have to have two doctors sign it off. However, it was definitely a win that we legalised abortion in our country. And then the the women's rights movement has then spent the next fifty years trying to make it slowly chip away at every single opportunity for the next like little thing along the way in liberalising uh women's right to choose. So yeah, I, I, I don't think I, I don't think you should say no BAM, we don't want any ban. I mean the Ultimately, that won't make any difference if they say that, right. because the government will still ban it. Um, yeah. So you know, well, they flip flop on that particular issue. Actually, oh god, I mean, <laughs> they've, they've been done, like, so slow to, on all of it, before... all round. Yeah, but you yeah, think... you shouldn't you shouldn't need to feel like you have to genuflect and act grateful for even for like being given a basic right, right not yeah. to have someone try and brainwash you out of who you love like it's fair enough to like you don't need to be like oh thank you so much we're so grateful that you're going to ban people trying to harm us mentally like that's a basic that you should have been allowed to expect regardless i had to learn that very early on but also i'm not asking for people to act with gratitude when they get a little bit of what they want but just just power it on for the next fight um so yeah that's what i'd say uh, on that particular issue. Yeah, there's,
2: a, there's an advantage to the momentum of, look, we've managed to nail these three objectives out of four.
4: Let's now carry on the momentum yeah. to the next one. I um, always have to compromise. I mean, when you've got a Tory government, that's, that's the fundamental. I, you water down the thing that you came out fighting for. Yeah. And, and, like, and, you know, that's not great. I'm not saying it's perfect, but focus on the outcome. Always yeah. focus on the outcome. So that you're a pragmatist, essentially. Mm-hmm, I am. Um, when you were
2: younger, you had your eye on the job of prime minister, and you've yep. also run to be leader of the Labour Party, um, which obviously, you know, uh, that's a person who knows that they might one day have the job of prime minister. Um, someone else who grew up wanting to be prime minister was Boris Johnson. So, what Didn't he want to be world king? In? Well, world, world king and god emperor. <laughs> <laughs> what, what? Do you think you guys have had different aims in what being prime minister would mean for you both?
4: Oh, yeah, totally. Although it probably starts from the same place, if I was completely honest. You know, when you're a kid and you decide you want to be the prime minister, it's essentially because you're a show off. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the the top and bottom of it. Although I grew up in a very political household, I went to women's liberation play group. You know, I like, you know, I saw uh, like people fighting for injustice literally every day around the dinner table at my my house. And my parents and grandparents properly dedicated their lives to it. Not and they lived it rather than just talking about it. Um, but, um, you know, the reason I wanted to be the prime minister is essentially, and I'm going to use some gendered language here now. I was bossy, opinionated, and, um, I was a show off and I still am a show off. And so it comes to Boris Johnson and exactly, I, I imagine that's exactly the same thing for him. Um, so I wouldn't necessarily criticise him for his childhood dreams any more than I, I, I you <laughs> know, I'm a slightly ashamed of mine. However, along the journey to get there, like you know, it's about like how you channel that showing off to uh, the benefit of the country, and Boris Johnson showing off only benefits himself. Speaking of Boris, do you think
2: the Ukraine crisis has saved his premiership? Because it looked like he was Mm -hmm. on the way out, and now it looks like he's in a more stable
4: position. Or do you think it's nothing to do with Ukraine? And actually, it's nothing to do with the country's perception of him. It's to do with the fact that the Conservatives don't have a viable alternative yet. If they did, they'd have got rid of him. It's actually down to like three hundred people whether Boris Johnson's the prime minister or not. It's nothing to do with. Um, And and the people in the country can affect it by being so appalled at him that they're like, right, we have got to get rid of him because otherwise it's going to affect our jobs. There are ruthless people, the Conservative Party. Mm. Certainly Conservative members of Parliament. The Labour Party is nowhere near as ruthless. And I'm not saying that even as a slight. We should be more ruthless at times. Um, But um, no, no, I don't think that the Ukraine thing has uh, saved him. I think what saved him is not that there isn't a populist, obvious alternative and largely no. some of that is down to Boris Johnson. Like, you know, he's quite good at getting rid of his uh opposition within his own ranks. Um yeah. once again, I refer you back to all the stories in the media about Rishi Sunak.
2: Uh-huh. Oh, skullduggery at Westminster. <laughs> Who would have thought? <laughs> um so as we are approaching the end of our time together, um one of the things I think is quite exciting is that you you have a lot of the uh you know, aside from that, you obviously do very serious work as an MP, you're a relatable personality um, and quite entertaining. And I know that there are options uh, circulating in the television world to have a movie or a movie, a TV movie or a series or something made uh, around your life as its inspiration. Mm hmm. Um, Do you have any opinion
4: about who should play you in a film of your life? So many opinions. Um, It's literally, I've been playing this game since the film Erin Brockovich came out when I was about 14. Basically, like, who would play you in your life? I used to want it to be Courtney Love because, you know, it was the 90s. And uh, I really felt that she got me. Uh, I think that maybe she's a little old and maybe a little wild to play me now that I'm a politician. Uh, but when <laughs> uh, when initially the rights of my first book were sold, uh, <laughs> me and my family all sat around. This is how seriously my family have taken this. Is that my, my husband, who is a white man, um, wanted to be played by Wesley Snipes specifically the role that he played in Demolition Man. I don't know why. He's wow. just like, I just really like him in Demolition Man. I want him, I want that character from Demolition Man to be me. My older son, maybe he's changed his mind now, wanted to be played by Will Smith. <laughs> and my younger son wanted to be played by Ellen DeGeneres. Ellen DeG- um, <laughs> Gosh.
2: Well, I think that that's very, that's a very glossy Hollywood version of,
4: of the Jess Phillips story. Yeah, uh, I want to be played by I. I want to be played by Vicky McClure. Vicky McClure. Yeah. Where well, am notes? Yeah, she's the <laughs> one. She's from. What's that one that everybody watched that I didn't watch? Uh, you know the one about the bent coppers. Oh, okay, I'm seeing that, yeah. Okay. And actually, she's
2: of line of duty. Line she's of, duty. of the relevant age, because I, I thought right. that if we were talking 25 years ago, mm-hmm. I think Emma Thompson could do a good Jess Phillips. <laughs> she's she's got a, a bit older than me now. Well, she's she? much too old now, but she's got yeah. that kind of robustness. Maybe even uh, Kate Winslet, but again, yeah.
4: maybe a little too old now. The, the only trouble with all of these people playing me which will almost certainly never happen and the reason i like vicky mcclure uh, is that no one has ever successfully mimicked a birmingham accent without it being dreadfully insulting ah, yes. uh, and whereas vicky mcclure is at least from the middle and she's from nottingham but yeah. that is in the middle and i feel like she's got a better chance of it but like you know like watching peaky blinders for me is like having somebody drag nails down a blackboard um because people who mimic Birmingham accents never get it right and so whoever had to play me would have that is so fundamental to my character to have a Birmingham accent that you that's going to take a lot of effort
2: well who knows perhaps I shall play the part and be the first you, you would- drag queen with a Birmingham I mean I don't even think I can do I mean I certainly can't do I find it hard to shake whatever accent it is I've ended up with. (laughs) Um, I would absolutely love to be played by a drag queen. I feel that's my energy. Well, you know, we're moving into a world where that sort of thing, I feel like you could have a psychedelic drag queen playing an MP kind of like. It could be a a real odyssey. I would watch that. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, listen, I'm honestly so grateful that you've given us our time. This is the first episode of season two of The Vanity Project. So you are a fabulous first guest. So so Jess Phillips, Um, I discharge you back to your business of, of, uh, of helping the people of Birmingham Yardley and thanks so much for joining us.
1: Thanks so much.
2: Joining me now for Queen's Corner, the section of the show where I chat to one of my nightlife pals, usually a drag queen, but today it's not a drag queen, it's a DJ. It's the lovely David Robson, a stalwart of places such as the Royal Vauxhall Tavern, XXL, he DJs in in Soho as well, we are always crossing paths and having a laugh. But pivotally, he is also now a councillor candidate for the ward of, you can tell me the name of the ward, your Labour candidate in the upcoming elections. Clapham Town. Clapham Town is that the name? Oh, Clapham Town. Clapham Town, yeah. They want You're to exci- make it. A- You're excited to have uh, to have been sitting in on the chat with Jess. You are. You've been Labour what your whole life. I've been a party member since
1: 2012, so I've kind of played the long game, you know, I kind of came into things, why I didn't go into it when things were going well, I don't know, but I decided, (laughs) you know, when I was involved in student union politics, Labour on conference floor within NUS was just dirt, so I kind of didn't commit, I was kind of on the sidelines wondering what all this politics thing was about i was part of the organized independence which i think must be the student politics equivalent of liberal democrats i don't know a bit dirty Mm -hmm. but it was just us being completely um, independent minded so i kind of started getting a bit warmed up with labor yeah, probably come twenty twelve. I think after Ken lost the mayoral election, did he lose in twenty twelve? I think he did, didn't he? Yeah, I think yes, because Boris had just come yes. in, um, and I just moved here at that time. And the the Conservatives and the coalition was in, and Boris was kind of in, so I felt this wave of conservatism coming, in and I was kind of like, look, come on, I'm a I'm a working class northeast gay boy, so I think you know time to get stuck in
2: you've always been very community oriented a lot of the a lot of why we became friends was that you do fundraiser events and stuff like that down in the clapham area well actually around london and because being a drag queen you know we we would me and some of the queens will perform at events that you're doing fundraisers for like for the wandsworth oasis down in clapham Yep. um and it strikes me that those are the types of people that should be going into politics the people who actually have some notches on their bedpost for the work they've done in their community. Mm. And you have many a notch on your (laughs) (laughs) bedpost. Which is all out in the open, which I feel (laughs) is
1: another reason why I can, you know, try and pursue a career now. Yeah, do you know what? I think... I did actually try and stand in 2013 and I kind of got this rejection letter come back, which kind of said, yeah, you know, you'll probably be a good candidate in the future, but you need to go and learn a bit about the job. And I just think what a cocky little so-and-so I was, you know what I mean? Thinking I did student union politics and I could just walk into this, but they were right. I needed to go away, learn about life and, and learn more about a community and how, you know, how a borough works, how, how community activism works. And actually you know, I, I've loved being the chair of the Ones with LGBT Forum for the last, what, 12 years? I've been involved since ever since I left university, really. But in June, I'll be standing down at the next AGM. And it's been a good training ground to, to, for whatever I go on to next, really. And I just think, yeah, you know, grassroots, community activism, it's it's the not the sexy stuff, you know. It's sitting in on council meetings, long council meetings, or it's sitting, being a critical friend to the NHS or other kind of public bodies, working with the police to kind of get, you know a job done and not everybody finds that you know accessible or pleasurable i don't know it, it's it's not exactly easy sometimes but i'm glad i've learned how to that's the way how you get things done play the long game tom
2: well you're going to have to go from oh well not to say that you that you're that your worries and your concerns as a person are limited to just lgbt issues because of course they're not you know and we'll yeah. talk you and i talk about all the politics of the day um are, are you conscious that, as Jess was saying, when you become an MP or an elected representative, you're going to have to have an opinion or you're going to have to be prepared to talk about everything? And in your local ward, that's going to be old ladies complaining about the, um, I don't know, the duck population of their local pond and people mm. complaining about... I mean, you say everything. that, but I wouldn't be surprised if that does come up. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah, but you know what I mean? And I, look, look, who knows what's gonna happen on May 5th. I'm not saying it's a shoe in or anything like that. So I'm not taking anything for granted. So let's see whatever happens after this. But what you know. I think if you're just honest with people and just go, okay, you know, I don't know everything about that. Can I go back and do a bit of research and come back to you? As long as you acknowledge people and say, I'm listening and say, okay, I hear you. I see you rather than ignore them or ghost them. Then I just think surely a bit of honesty, it builds up a bit more of respectability between it, even if you don't agree.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, I think that that's, the ability to listen is part of that solutions oriented thing that we were discussing just then, Jess and I. Yeah. If you want to actually resolve stuff, don't assume that you, one, already have the answer. I mean, like the stuff that
1: she was saying about, you know, the, the issue around her, about LGBT schools, right? That was complete mm. drumming up, like to whip up hysteria, you know, and I just think that and then making other people. And those
2: people weren't even affected in the area where she lived, right? This is just one issue that people were galvanizing on. That must have been a nightmare. I, I, I think that, you know, I'm, I'm not one of those people that wants to clobber religious groups or, you know, sh- shove them off the edge of the earth. I, I think that faith and spiritualism and religion have a real place in people's lives. So when people have their concerns, even though it comes up against me in my life as a gay person or young young gay people, I do feel like we really have to find a way to mediate that, a solution where people, uh, where you try and have a a way that benefits everybody. Hmm. But that is in that for that question, it's hard. It's hard hmm
1: i thought she would answered it really well though you know and i really admire her for facing them down and going down and, and you know what i think jess is brilliant at is just calling the spade a spade isn't she and yeah. just come you know you're talking rubbish here actually you know and, and then being on the side of both of those arguments you know what i mean and, and, and so not being on the side of both of those arguments but actually reaching out to those who have valid concerns and then go yeah that you this can, person is wrong in gaslighting you and here is why
2: you can be on the side of all the people i'm on your side as a person but we disagree about the subject of the debate we disagree about our our opinions are at odds but i i'm not against you i think that's an important thing yeah and, you know, and going into local politics, you know, people care about where
1: they live. They care about whether they're, and you know me, Tom, I have a WhatsApp group for our bin rotation in this building. So, you know, people care about when the bins are taken out. People care about cleaner air or people care, you know, being able to drive the kids around or, or, you know, or people care about, you know, having the common being accessible and not having too many events on there, you know? And I think in light of you know, the Everard case, which, which happened, obviously, in around when you were living down here at the time, yeah. you know, there's a real, there's a real question mark. not just, there's going to be a, lo- a real balance, I think, of the local issues that matter like that, you know, just having life, but then there's such a huge thing, that was such a national event on our doorstep, I think, yeah. you know, it, it's, a, it's going to be, yeah, it would be an interesting four years, that's for sure.
2: Well, my fingers are crossed for you. I do hope you do well. I think that in Clapham, you are in, with a good shot, the constituents of the area, you know, are, I think pre- predisposed towards labour. And I think that you do know the area, you actually love there, you've lived there for so long, and you are a figure in the community who is ready to go and listen and roll your sleeves up. So I do wish thank you the best of luck.
1: Thank you. I mean, where else can, you know, a local candidate go and get his hair cut, stumble out to the brewers? Know the local kebab shop, the local chicken shop, Go where to go for a Sunday dinner, you know? I mean, yeah, it's in my DNA. Would you, you say actually, you, you're a Clapham celebrity? You need to, I, I want like my drag queen gang to come down and campaign with me. That should help a few things, shouldn't it, no? It, it, it
2: might help. Or they might pull focus, David. They might. You must always be careful of a drag queen pulling focus. I don't even like doing things with other drag queens sometimes because (laughs) then they all i feel like we all cancel each other out <laughs> that could happen yeah and then
1: people might be looking for you on the ballot paper instead of me god help oh us all god. if you ended up on a ballot paper dear yeah
2: yeah. i don't, I don't see myself uh, at <laughs> the future in elected politics so just just
1: jumping back to jess quickly as well though i would i mean i know she probably mentioned it earlier but um you know jess being
2: on strictly i'd love to see that i think wouldn't you well you know i don't watch silly tv like that but well, you're out gigging, aren't you? You're working on a Saturday night. I'm working all the time. And I only watch something if Nicole Kidman's in it. Oh, do you think she did Strictly? Absolutely not. Get real. <laughs> Nicole Kidman's busy. Did you see her face at the Oscars, by the way? I know it moved for the first time since 2003. That should have won its own Academy Award. That, uh, do you know what? A hundred percent. hundred percent. Nicole Kidman's forehead deserves a five head, actually. It uh, deserves <laughs> its own award. Well, on that note, listen, this has kicked off the first season, uh, no, the first episode of the second season of The Vanity it, Project. It, that's it. Um, and we have some other political guests lined up for this season. We've also got some people from uh, the world of entertainment. So if you, the listener at home are enjoying, and this was your first time, make sure that you subscribe and share this so that people can see it. We're trying to grow the audience here so that we can have more and more big, fascinating conversations with interesting people. Uh, Thank you to Jess Phillips today, and thank you to my Queen's Corner cast, David Robson. Thank you, dear.